Hey folks, Nate here. You're listening to Critical Care, a show about games, community, and finding hope in a time of global unrest. This is episode 32, featuring Dave Gilbert of Wajidai Games, creator of the Blackwell series, Unavowed, and Techno Babylon. Enjoy. Well, my name is Dave Gilbert, he, him. Uh, I am an indie adventure game developer. I have been in business since 2006. I uh, do point-and-click adventure type games, very narrative focused. Um, I've been making games in general for about 20 years. Uh, we are known for the Blackwell series, uh, Gemini Rue, Techno Babylon, Primordia. We recently did Unavowed. Uh, what else? Uh, Shardlight, Puzzlebots. Um, and uh, a whole bunch of games <laughs> that I'm, I'm forgetting. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them off the top of my head, but we've done all those. Um, I'm focused on uh, writing and developing my own stuff, and I also publish others. Uh, we are currently publishing uh, Wormwood's Strangeland, um, Richard Cobbett's Nighthawks, and I am personally working on something called Old Skies. So you should be hearing more about those uh, next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess I also should say, I don't know if, if you mentioned it, I missed it, um, but your studio is Wadjet Eye, which... Um, Wadjet Eye Games, yes. Wadjet Eye, yeah, which people might be uh, <laughs> be familiar with, uh, even if they don't know you personally, since I, I definitely know a lot of people who have uh, recently been, been picking up, especially the Blackwell games, those seem to, to really resonate a lot with people uh or at least they see like five of them and they're just like wow resonance is... that's another one of our games resonance yes i haven't played that one but it's been on my list there's i am i am every time i go on the steam page and kind of see what y'all are working on i'm surprised that there's like three more games that i have forgotten <laughs> about um you've done a lot <laughs> yeah it was also very very surprised oh, going on to like your upcoming games and seeing that there's a bunch kind of down the pipeline both internally and stuff that you're working on with, with other teams which uh, we'll probably get into a bit later on sure um before that though i was kind of curious uh since you've been doing this for quite a while especially within the games industry which seems to have kind of a a very low tenor for a lot of people um, I was curious kind of to to go back and talk a bit about uh, what that's been like starting back in 2006 and then kind of going through uh, growing as a studio and kind of being one of the early kind of success stories for smaller teams and smaller developers as we kind of see this like indie boom coming out. Uh, I guess kind of a, a bit of like an abridged history since obviously can't get into it that much, but I was curious kind of what that's been like since so much has changed in the last yeah. decade or so um well in 2006 i guess uh, the biggest difference um is that fewer people were doing this kind of thing there were uh, it, the whole indie game thing was kind of not that um had only just started to happen and it's kind of quaint to think about because back then um i remember my biggest uh challenge was just getting people to to enter their credit card online to buy a game. Mm-hmm. 
um, Steam didn't exist. Humble didn't exist. You know, you, you had to like create your own little shop and and take credit cards. I had to host all of that on my website. I think I used something called CubeCart, and um, and so yeah, just getting people to trust that I wasn't going to steal their credit card information was kind of like a, a, a big deal. Um, I remember that was like the biggest hurdle. I remember people would like mail me cash and then huh. I would like send them a link to the game. And I remember getting like all this foreign currency in the mail that I'd have to go like across town to get exchanged. Oh my gosh. It's, it was so nuts. Like, um, and so, yeah, like the, the scene was a lot smaller and maybe a little scrappier. Um, I, I guess the biggest, the biggest clear difference I would say is that back then it was like, how do I get, you know, um, reviewers or, or, you know, bloggers or whatever, or, you know, that, that you wouldn't, I wouldn't have used the term influencers back then, but mm -hmm. how do I get people to talk about my game, getting people interested in, in my game? And it, it was about, cause like no one was paying attention to indie games at all. It was like, oh, that's cute, you know, like, but now we want to talk about, you know, what was big in 2006, you know, whatever. Um, I guess the biggest difference was like that um, it, w it was very hard to get noticed by like press and bloggers and, and so on. Back then they were kind of one and the same because so few people were doing it. So it was like, how do we get them to take, you know, games seriously, get these, take the, uh, how do we get them to take these types of games seriously? Whereas now, it's sort of like, it's sort of the same problem, but in a different way. Now there are so many indie games, mm -hmm. even uh, indie adventure games. So it's like, how do I get people to notice mine out of this massive ocean of other games? So even even with Steam, the challenge like back in you know like 2010, 2011 was like, how do I get on Steam? How do I get on Steam? And now the problem is, how do I get noticed on Steam? Because it's very easy to get on Steam now. So it's, things are still, it's still challenging. Um, but for me, since I kind of grew with the scene, um, it's a little easier than, it's a little easier for me having been around since 2006 than someone just starting now because there's so much out there. And how, how do you, the challenge is how do you make a name for yourself when so many other people are competing to do the same thing? And um, I, I honestly don't know how I would start now um, compared to when I started back then, because things are very, very different. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the things I find so interesting I is seeing, because I remember I wasn't hugely active on Steam back in the, I guess it would have been the late, early 2010s um but i remember going on there and there would be like maybe a dozen or so indie games which was basically what are the games that are under 20 dollars and mm -hmm. uh among them were some of your games and it was it was such a a different experience being just like okay here are those these are the games that exist in the world and there are enough of them that i could theoretically play them all within a given year and now that is just completely uh, out oh, of the question. Now it's just there are hundreds of games every single day, which, yeah. granted, so, a lot of these games may have existed at the time and just weren't in any way visible, but it's it's very interesting to see how different kind of long-term developers are kind of 
re react to that, I guess. Um, seeing like, because uh, from from what I can tell, your games as they come out continue to kind of get a fair amount of attention, and at least from like critical circles. And I I looked at Avowed uh, recently, and it had like over a thousand Steam reviews, which seemed pretty indicative of, of some sort of popularity. I can't speak obviously I mean, firsthand, but that doesn't happen with every game. Yeah, Unavowed. Unavowed is actually um, probably the exception because it's it is our biggest seller. It was one of the it was our game that was received the most uh, the the most positively, critically and financially. So it's like mm. if you look at Unavowed as like that's not the average mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of like my catalog. It's yeah. actually out of like the 15, 16 games we've we've released or published, like maybe about four or five of them I would consider like hits. Mm. Um, and that's just by my standards. Cause you know, I, I'm indie. Like I, the only, I only have a handful of people that I need to pay. So it's like what I consider a success, like other people might not like a thousand reviews for me. Great. For other people. That's like, for some others that's like oh that's it that's nothing you know like it's everything success is always relative mm -hmm, for sure yeah i i'm i'm curious about that one then it's in particular kind of i guess going sideways briefly of of maybe why you think that game has done uh done better either just on on in terms of like steam player reviews or steam sales i don't i don't always know the exact correlation there but like why why unavowed has been the one that's kind of left out i wish i knew uh because then every game i do would be a hit i i think it, it's easy to look back mm -hmm. and and see okay this is why it did well and likewise if the game bombed i would look at the exact same game and say okay this is why it didn't do well but but i think what i what i tapped into with that game um is that it compresses really well. Like I was able, like I, I made the game kind of, uh, the inspirations for the game were taken from things that I really enjoy and I really like and other people really like and really enjoy. Like urban fantasies like Dresden Files or Hellblazer um, and also like the Bioware style uh, narrative structure which um, a lot of people are very familiar with and people still love those games and they they kind of miss w when those games were king. And so like that kind of narrative structure is instantly very familiar to a lot of players who, who love those games as well. And also the people who like point and click adventure games, you know, from, from back in the day. So I, I managed to like tap into a few different fandoms. Like if you like adventure games, you'll like this. If you like those old bio games, you like this. If you like urban fantasy, you'll like this. Um, and I, I managed to like tap into a bunch of stuff. And also, um, we, and also maybe the game is good. I hear that matters sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I wish I knew, I mean, I, I'm happy. I'm eternally grateful. I'm grateful mm -hmm. every day that people like this game. Um, and it continues to sell well and people still love it and send me fan art and, and positive comments and things like that. I, I love the game and I love the characters and I'm, I'm so glad, um, but I also, there are games where I also thought like going into it, like this is going to be, this is going to be huge. This is going to be, this is going to set the world on fire. This game is going to be the game. And then it comes out and it's like, people like it, but it then it kind of quietly disappears. And I think, oh, well, that's a shame. Like what happened? And then again, I'll look at that same game and, and think, okay, well, maybe this, maybe that, maybe this. Um, 
I, I don't know <laughs> why it did well. I am just eternally grateful that it did. I'll leave it up to smarter people than me to figure that out. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. It feels like increasingly that's kind of the sentiment that I'm, I'm hearing is that people will, it, it seems like it's maybe easier to say why something hasn't done well than why something has, has blown up or at least like been more successful than past games. I think this year, especially since we've seen quite a few just kind of surprise, like breakout hits, stuff like uh, like Phasmophoria or Among Us or mm-hmm. Hades even, um, which is another like kind of team that's been around for a while, but I think Hades has, has blown up to well beyond uh, even their past games. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And it's, 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 it's a great game too. Mm-hmm, which... Uh, is obviously an, an aspect in a lot of these, but it's it's so curious to me trying to figure out well, why is why is this the one that mm-hmm. suddenly everyone's latched onto because there's rarely any through line between these. I mean, this year some of, a lot of them have been kind of multiplayer games, which you could link to people wanting ways to connect with people. But then there's stuff like Hades, which is just is is still a single player game. So it's like, well, what is the secret here? And there's I guess a lot of ways you could interpret that, but I think with with anything, it's um, I guess uh, it was here. Well, th- there's no like rhyme or reason to what's like what makes a good game or a bad game, or mm-hmm. what makes the game sell versus not sell. Um, so it's like, so I figure in that case, you might as well make a good one. <laughs> you mm-hmm. might as well make a good one if 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 it's all voodoo anyway. If you if you might as well try to make a good game, because I think that like even if your game doesn't sell right away or if it's not this it's not a big hit or what have you if the game is good then it's something that it will it will find its audience um eventually um it's something that like you know a good game will out you know people Mm -hmm. people will find it it's something that will will be out there and people will still you know and and also it's, it's a bit esoteric but making games is hard making games is really hard just the fact that you've created something and got it out there, if like if one person likes it, that's kind of a miracle. <laughs> like you you made a thing. You know, you're it's it's that that's an achievement in itself. Games are hard to make. And if you're may at all somehow managing to eke a living out of making games, whether you're, you know, a huge success or not, if you're managing to earn your living making it, then I consider you a success because it's so hard. It's so difficult. It's it's. Um, I could think of few things more satisfying, but I could certainly think of many easier ways <laughs> to earn a living. Um, but yeah, like, like like I said, there's no rhyme or reason. And, and yeah, you're right. It's a it's a lot easier to look back and try to th- try to pinpoint what a game did wrong, because mm-hmm. every game is flawed in some way or form. Every game is flawed in some way or form. So if a game doesn't do well, you could say, oh, it must be that thing. It must be that thing. You know. Um, like if unavowed was a flop, I could point to like all the flaws the game has. Oh, it must be the unvoiced protagonist, you know, it must, it must've been this. Um, but, uh, so like I could, I could easily point to things and say, oh, that must be why it didn't do well. But I don't know. I have no idea why a game succeeds or fails. I, I know that there was a, um, uh, I was at a, a booth, um, at a, a PAX East a few years ago. There was a publisher They had two games side by side. One of them I loved, and the other one I thought was really boring. The one I really loved came out, and no one bought it. 
the one I thought was horrendously boring came out and it was a license to print money. It's so successful. Um, so basically I know nothing. <laughs> My instincts of what is, what, what is a successful game and what isn't is, uh, are not very good. So yeah, I've kind of rambled. It's a very long winded way of saying I have no idea. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. And I've, I've seen that happen a lot where the, the kind of, I guess, critical consensus, or at least among a group of people uh, engage with that space is just wildly off from what the broader like public, I guess, is, is playing. And I have no idea how to really suss that out. I feel like I'm so far removed from ordinary people playing games that it's hard for me to even understand what exactly their like priorities are um, compared to to me which i tend to just seek out stuff i find is weird and, and interesting because of that um yeah. well the interesting thing now is um is there are so many games mm -hmm. and there's more people than ever playing them that like your game can find an audience and like there's really um there's no such thing as like broad mass market appeal anymore because mm -hmm there's so many like niches mm -hmm. and like niches within niches, you know, like you could just drill down to find like a core experience of something, you know, and then you'll, there's like a group of people who love that one thing. Um, and if you can, if you can tap into that market and own it, then like you can do pretty well. Um, Cause there's some more people than ever playing games and there's so many different types of games, you know, even just like, uh, you know, mobile games or tablet games or, or whatever. There's so many, it's like unbelievably unbelievable amount like everyone plays games now so yeah like there's no like i don't know there's really no such thing as like mass market anymore it's all mm -hmm. about finding a niche for sure especially for indies indies looking for mass market shouldn't be indies yeah which which is interesting seeing there was a period it it's maybe not as much so now but there was a period where it seemed like larger like more traditional triple a studios were trying to like craft like indie adjacent experiences like i remember uh ubisoft for i don't know if this was just one year that they did this or a couple years but they put out like a handful of games that were kind of seeming to like master rate as as indie games because that was this is probably back in like 2013 or 14 where indie games were starting to grow in popularity. And it was really interesting seeing a, a larger company trying to, to position themselves in that space. I, I don't think it, it did particularly well for them because they, mm -hmm. the, the things people are looking for in indie games are not typically ones that AAA developers can, can provide even if mm -hmm. they're working on a smaller budget, but it's kind of interesting that that hasn't happened in the indie space. Cause you know, I have been in business since since 2006, as we established. I am I am old, but uh, I am the old guard now, which is old guard now, which is which is weird. But um, I've seen a lot of trends come and go. Like I remember, you know, it used to be oh everything had to be flash. You know, it was like you go onto um, oh my god, was it Newgrounds? Mm -hmm. And it's like you had all these like you know one man you know like one person teams 
you know, making these little games and selling them and earning their living that way. And then big big, the big companies came in and saw, saw the money there and they started, you know, sponsoring and they started, you know, offering, you know, advertising on games and like it got, it got very corporate and then they just sort of gutted that market. And then it went, so then flash games were dead, flash games were dead. And then it went to like casual games, you know, something you can just quickly download and, um, you pick up right away or you can put down whenever you want, you know, um, and those were the, the, the big hotness for a few years, like in the mid two thousands, like, mm-hmm. like the diner dash and, uh, you know, the, the chocolatiers and, and all of those, like those were, those are, and those are or virtual villagers made by very small teams. And then you had big companies come in and start making those games, crafting those same games that caught, and they, they spent millions of dollars on them, you know? And then like the corporations took over and then they became very soulless. And then, you know, those games are completely dead now. <laughs> and then, then you had like Facebook games, um, same thing, mobile games, same thing. And, but you have like the, the indies who are especially on, on PC, Windows, Mac, you know, like the, mm-hmm. um, those haven't really gone away. Yeah. The corporation, the big companies tried to take over, but they're not going to have like the same effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because there's like, there's no like one place where you get them. You know, you had like flash games was one place you got them. Casual games, you got them from the casual sites. Facebook was all on Facebook. But for indie games, you get them from all over. And, you know, Steam for for all its sins has managed this very well. They've kind of, you know, the fact that anyone can get on Steam means anyone can get on Steam. So the the big company can get a game on Steam and the little guy can also get on Steam. And so the the playing the playing field is very level which is which is great uh, for the barrier to entry is very low. Getting noticed is a lot more difficult, as I said before. But like, yeah, you haven't had that like corporatification of indie games. Um, and you have like some tr- indie games that are, you know, that have large budgets. Um, I'm sure Supergiant's budgets are much bigger than mine, but they, they still manage to maintain that like that indie cred by doing new and unique things and not having you know, uh, uh, dozens of corporate focus groups to try to find out like what's hot and what's popular. Um, they just kind of make what they feel, what they, what they think is cool. And because they put their heart and soul into it, that resonates with the audience. And that's, that's something, uh, like a, a one or two person team can do that a, a larger company can't is that you can maintain that focus of vision um, when it's just you doing it, I'd rather a, a big company can't really maintain that. It's a lot more difficult. And so it kind of comes, it kind of comes out being more soulless as a result. Um, when the big companies try to do it, they try to pretend they're cool in indie. It's not going to be because it's not coming from a sincere place. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I made any sense at all. No, hopefully someone got something out of that. <laughs> no, I, that's hopefully that made sense to somebody. Yeah, no, I think that absolutely tracks. I, I, I feel vindicated that somebody else remembers Chocolatier because that used to be my absolute <laughs> favorite thing, and I still think about I it anytime I eat chocolate. It was published by Play First, so I remember Chocolatier because it was big at the time. All right, and yeah, and you you've put out at least one date game, I think, with Play First, the yeah, Emerald City Confidential. Confidential. Yeah, right. I haven't played that, but I. I had a friend uh, who would call that game his white whale because it would never 
go on sale during a Steam sale. Well, because uh, Play First is basically forgotten. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I have no control over it. I wish yeah. I could put it on sale, but I can't. Yeah, but it was it was very funny to me just watching watching him wait every time. It's like maybe this is the time I'll I'll get that last gonna that last widget. I yeah, I think I gifted it to him after a point. I think he was <laughs> mad at me for it because he didn't have something to look forward to then. Oh, but no. uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that was an interesting experience because it was like I um it, it was the first time I ever had a budget. It was the first time like I ever worked for some. It was the only time in my career I worked for somebody else. Um, and it was like we were making a game for an audience that wasn't my usual audience. And also it was very early in my career, very early. Like when I think like, wow, we made that game in 2008 and I had only started in 2006. I remember at the time thinking, oh, I know so much. Yeah, I'm like, I'm an expert in this field now. I was, in, I was a dumb moron. Like I didn't know anything and here I am being published. Um, and so, yeah, but it, was, it was an interesting experience, but I, I much prefer working for myself. Yeah, kind of. Along those lines, um, I wanted to talk a bit about, so on top of making your own kind of in-house game, you're also, you've also been working with other studios for a while now, kind of, uh, well, I'm not entirely sure exactly what capacity you, you uh, work in, because it doesn't, it doesn't areas. feel like the traditional publisher model, because aside from all of these games being kind of, uh, under the Wadget Eye, like, house, I guess, they also share a lot of kind of stylistic and, and structural similarities. Like, they all look like they could belong in the same sort of crowd. Um, so I was curious kind of about your approach to these these other projects where you're providing either publishing or support of, of some kind. I'm, I imagine it differs a bit on different projects, but I was curious to talk a bit about that. And I kind of fell into that. Um, well, I didn't fall into it. I deliberately sought it out. But um, like I said, when I when I was published by Play First, I thought, oh, I know everything now. I, I'm an expert now. So I see how they're publishing me. Maybe I can publish someone else. Uh, because I I saw like the way my business worked, and you know, I'd I'd uh, back then um, a game took about a year to make, and I kind of would spend all my time and money on it. And if it didn't sell, um, then I knew I would I was dead in the water because I wouldn't be able to bounce back from that. Uh, and it's funny because games take significantly longer to make now. But back then it was like if I didn't have a game come out every year, I was done because like by the end of that when a game comes out a year later, like the sales kind of would dry up. Um, and I needed to uh, um, kind of hedge my bets. I kind of wanted to spread the risk around. And my thought was that I would uh, help fund uh, another game to be made. And and then I could work on my own thing while that other game was being made. Uh, and that was that was the theory. Um, what ended up happening, uh, it was a game called PuzzleBots was the game that I had first um, started to publish. And that was like my, like, oh yeah, the, the, like um, the, the casual market is is really big. You know, these cute cartoony games with simple mechanics. Let's let's make this game. This looks really cool. You know, this is what's popular now. Um, unfortunately, what I, what, I, what I did, which wasn't terribly smart, was I, um, the game was, was complicated to, to, to create. And I ended up programming the game myself, which kind of defeated the, my original purpose <laughs> of 
you know, working on my own thing and then publishing, the, you know, paying for this other game to be made because to pay a programmer to make the game was was too much, was impossible. So I'm like, I'll just do it myself, whatever. How hard could it be? Um, so I basically was paying the developer for the privilege of me working on the game. <laughs> Which and 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 the game it, the game was was cute and fun, but but it came out and, and sadly like the the um the the market for the the type of game that we were making you know the, the cute cartoony games with simple mechanics like that kind of the, that the market for that kind of passed us by like suddenly mm-hmm. the new hotness in the casual scene was the realistic gritten gritty or, um, hidden object games that was the big thing so our game comes out and it's like, oh, we don't, we don't play these types of games anymore. And, and so that was, that kind of taught me a lesson of trying not to gauge and read the market um, because like I'm companies with, with millions of dollars to burn, can't figure it out. I don't have a prayer. Uh, so I, um, it, it was an interesting experience and, and I'm glad we make the game, made the game. Uh, the game is super cute and super fun, but sadly, mm-hmm. like I put too much of my own, time and money into it and at the time i had so little money to work with that um i kind of like uh it didn't didn't do what i it didn't achieve the goal i had hoped to achieve which is to have several games come out in tandem but then what happened um what the, the good thing about it was that uh at least for you know my company was that it cemented me as a publisher it's like oh yeah these guys are a publisher and then um the developer of gemini Rue approached me with his game and I'm like, okay, well, this game is really cool. Uh, and it was practically complete. It just needed like some QA and the voice acting and a little bit of art here and there. Um, so I'm like, okay, sure. Like this seems almost too good to be true. And so we published that game. Um, you know, we, we did the voice acting. We, we, you know, we got it to, to the finish line. And basically the developer, Josh Nurnberger, he just kind of wanted to finish it and be done with it. He didn't want to have to do the support or the porting or the, or, you know, he didn't want to do any of that. He just wanted to finish, you know, enter the last bit of code and give it to me and, and, and just collect money once it comes out. Um, and so the game came out and that game kind of is what put us on the map. Suddenly people were paying attention to us. People really, really liked that game. And it was kind of the polar opposite of the previous game, PuzzleBots. Gemini Roo was a game that I spent very little money on. I worked on, I didn't like, I didn't put a lot of time, personal time into it um, because it was, you know, the developer was working on it. He did all the programming um, and it ended up being a, like a huge financial success. And um, it, I sort of thought like, wow, like maybe publishing can work, but the, getting a game like that, just dropping into my lap like that was like lightning in a bottle. That was never, ever going to happen again. And so what I decided to do was um, look for other games that could use our help. Because by that point, we had some experience in, in, in developing games and creating games and publishing games. And I thought, well, maybe there's some other folks that would um, kind of, that just need some help getting to the finish line. Like, we can't offer you money. We're not a traditional publisher in that. We cannot give you money. But we'll give you our time. We'll give you our experience. And at this point, and we can give you our brand name, which sounds a little pretentious, but you know, we had a name for ourselves by then. And so we um, we got in touch with um, with uh, Vince Wesselman of, of 
I don't know what you like X like 12 games, XII games, who was making a game called Resonance. And um, we made a deal with him. Like he had been working on his game for a very long time, was having a lot of trouble getting it to the finish line because he had a full-time job and kids. And um, me and my wife didn't have a kid at the time. So we're like, we got the time, we can do this. And so we made a deal with him where we, we, my wife, who's a programmer, um, kind of programmed the whole thing and got it done and we released it. And so now we're, we're the same thing where we're kind of taking care of it. So, um, and that sort of became like part of my business model is to do publishing as well as develop my stuff. And it's, it's kind of really nice because what happens is, um, it also kind of like, I'm getting ahead of myself, but what happens is, is like, I'll work on my own game for a few years and then I'll get very burnt out by the end of it. And then it's kind of nice to, you know, switch gears and kind of help other people achieve their vision. Um, kind of like have that distance and kind of offer feedback and help, um, and, and use a different side of my brain. Um, and I, I do that for a few uh, for a, uh, a year or two, and then and then I kind of go back to where I was. So like enough helping people with their vision. What about my vision? I want to do my own thing again. <laughs> so then I go back to doing my thing, and the cycle kind of goes back and forth, and it's kind of nice. I get the best of both worlds, and and also I I have worked with some just absolutely amazing, brilliant, inspiring developers who have just done some like the, the stuff they've done is just something I couldn't even like begin to approach doing. You know like. Like Primordia, uh, Gemini Ru, the world of Techno Babylon is just blows my mind how brilliant it is. You know, like all these games are just so amazing. And like I thought, like hubristically at the beginning, I'm doing these developers the favor when really they're, they're the ones helping me because like I am so inspired by what they're creating. It kind of spurs me to do better because like I, I could have coasted, you know, I could have coasted. Like people liked my work and I could have coasted on uh, at the level I was at. But I'm publishing these games and I'm seeing what people can do. And it's like, wow, like I, I, why not try to do better? Why not try to do better? And so it's like, it's a little symbiotic <laughs> in a way mm -hmm. because um, I get to work with some amazing people and they, I in turn internalize a lot of the lessons I learned from their work and put it into mine. And then, you know, I obviously learn things on my work when I do my own thing and then I can, I can help other people with, with their projects. And it, it's kind of nice. I, I feel like I, I kind of, um, it's this like positive feedback loop that I've, that I've, uh, I've kind of grown to rely on to sustain me <laughs> the longer I do this. And that was a very long winded answer to your question. Um, but that's kind of how I started and that's kind of, uh, um, how things are now. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's, I, I would not have picked puzzle bots as being the, the first uh, kind of collaboration game. If if it's any consolation, I, one of my earliest Steam friends, whose opinion I I hold in high regard, is, absolutely adores that game. So it, oh. it clearly it clearly oh, touched wow. some person. It's adorable. It was really fun to make too. Um, like because I I had, I had to make AGS do things that it had, was not designed to do. Like you could only have I think forty individual objects in one room at one time. And there were some rooms where they just you, you needed more than that. And I would do these insane things. Like there was this one level, a little, little bit of a tangent. Like this is one level where you have to burn a haystack and get an object inside. And then later on in the same room, the same level, there's something else. You, you, you open up a door or a drawer and there's an object in there. Um, but I didn't have enough 
you know, I ran out of objects. I ran out of individual objects to use in the room. So I took that haystack object that you burned at the beginning. I turned it into the new thing <laughs> and put it there. So it's like that, that object you get later in the level is actually the haystack object from the beginning. I, I had to like twist the laws of physics to get that game working, but uh, it, it was fun. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it <laughs> but, I'm, so, but I'm glad people enjoy it. But, but sadly we, it was like, um, like the market we were hoping to sell this game to just kind of wasn't interested in it, mm-hmm. which, which I, I just, it was, I feel bad because I, I was like convinced that this was like going to be massive and going to be this brilliant thing. I thought I had like, you know, seen the matrix. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this is the, this is it. This is what's going to sell, you know? And, um, I, I was completely wrong. And I've always, I've always felt bad about that because, I think back to that and just how like how convinced I was that I had cracked a code. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and every time I think, I'm like, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. And I think back to that. I'm like, no, you don't. You got no idea. No one has any idea. Um, so yeah, that uh, that was definitely an interesting experience. Yeah. Those those are my favorite stories are are hearing just the weird workarounds people do to make games work. It the developer of, the, of that game is now working um, on, you know, Horizon Zero Dawn. Like she's done some, you know, she's, oh, wow. she's moved on to do some amazing things. So I'm happy for her too. Yeah, it's quite maybe a bit more of a technically involving game, but <laughs> just we'll, a little bit. We'll, yeah. we'll be on if I ever play that. I'll be on the lookout for for haystacks and <laughs> haystacks and keys. And... Yeah, I mean, uh, it is a game that has robots in it. So oh yeah, there's there's the three line puzzle bots and Horizon Zero Dawn, basically the same game. Um, but yeah you you mentioned kind of having looking at at all of the different people you work with and like how the breadth of their their ideas and that's one of the things that i've always found really uh, fascinating about Wadjet eyes is looking through through all the games and just how how varied they are in terms of just like story or, or setting or just like the the mood of them there's just a huge, huge like range in there, but they all feel very distinctly of of like a similar kind of family, I guess. Which well, they're all most mostly they're low budget pixel art adventure games. I mean, they all mm-hmm. look like they could have come from the same production house, and they all sort of fall into the same category of Dave likes this. <laughs> so it all come like it's all like my personal taste. Like I wouldn't publish something if I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So. It all looks like something that could have come from, you know, uh, not my brain exactly, but it it looks like something I would. It basically looks like so. If you know me, it looks like something I would like. So, mm-hmm. I guess I guess in, in that respect, like if it comes from Wajedi, it's because Dave likes it. Mm-hmm. So they all fall into that category, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's your, it's your personal curation group yeah. over here. But uh, switching gears once more, just. To, to touch on this um, before running out of time uh, the definitely the games I associate most with you are the Blackwell games um, this this series of, of five uh, five games which tell a elongated story which I think itself is kind of rare uh, in games um, the last one came out uh, for people who don't know in, in 2014 uh, the Blackwell Epiphany which I'm just now finishing up, so I I was sadly not able to finish it before this call, but I'm I'm very close and I'm very 
very excited there's there's already been a few moments where i'm just like oh shit i did not expect that uh that very surprising stuff um but i i did want to talk kind of about about that process specifically kind of having written and, and created all these games over many years uh and then finally kind of concluding that um and then moving on to your next project i was curious what that was like having having this project that spanned a fair amount of kind of your time years, in this space eight years it took to, to write the whole black mm-hmm. series and uh when, when did you start playing them uh gosh i i it, it would have been on steam so probably early early 2010s maybe 2013 or 14 oh, okay so. you said you're playing the last one so i got the impression that you had like kind of just discovered them because like people tell me oh yeah i've just i played them all over the weekend i'm like oh great that's like a decade of my life that you just binged oh no <laughs> yeah i've i've been dipping in and out i've i'm terrible uh, about like keeping yeah. up with when stuff releases so every so often i'll remember like what happened to that game and i'll look it up and they'll be of like a whole ton of stuff has happened i was like i should probably dip back into this so i'm i'm finally wrapping back around to epiphany i don't i had to kind of dip, give myself a refresher because i had played the the previous one a while before that as well so, but it's it's been a fun thing to revisit uh, oh. <laughs> over the years to answer your question um but you're saying what was it like to to finish it and move on to other things is that what you're asking yeah just kind of i guess like having such like a large project um mm. I, I i don't i'm always curious what it what it feels like for people who take that on um well, and then kind of close it out when i started working on it i had this hubristic idea that i could like this could be i could have 10 games in this series like i can this could go on forever i could probably get a new game of game like this out every four months I don't know where I got that from. But I managed to get the first one out in four months, but only by killing myself. And it was like a very short, um, very very clunky game. And, and that was kind of what led to the reason um, I uh, decided to end it when I did, is because um, I couldn't really deny the reality that even though the games, um, I would say they definitely did get better as they went on. Because Blackwell Legacy was very much my first game Technically, the Shiva was my first game, but the Blackwell Legacy was the first game I wrote intending it to be a commercial game. The Shiva was originally freeware that I turned commercial, but Blackwell Legacy, I'm writing it to sell it. And um, it has all my newbie mistakes. Like there, there's just massive like dialogue info dumps. Um, I, I think the characters are not very well defined at that point um it's it's very it's very clunky i made all my my newbie mistakes with blackwell legacy and then i think i got better with unbound i I kind of figured out what what worked in terms of gameplay by deception the fourth game especially like i think i kind of nailed what made a blackwell story work um and i knew when i was working on the last game and as much as i love these characters uh, I had been, you know, with them for a long time, and I knew them really well. I could write Rosa and Julia in my sleep, and I, I adored them. But I, I couldn't deny the reality that no matter how good Epiphany was, and I think it's a really good game, um, that it would still be shackled and hum- and hobbled by the first very clunky game in the series. That I release a new Blackwell game, and a, a, a newcomer to the series would probably start with the first one and probably bounce off of it and not get to the good ones. 
And that was very dispiriting and very discouraging because I'm like making Blackwell Epiphany and putting my heart and soul into it. And I'm like, I just, I couldn't get that out. I couldn't just get that out of my head that like, this is like, I'm, this can't reach the heights that I want it to because it's, you know, because of that first game. And I kept thinking, oh, should I just go back and redo the first game? I'm like, ah, that's just, that's just cheating. Like, no. And, and I, I decided to end it because I figured it, w- it was time. It was a good time to end it, kind of draw a line under everything I had learned, everything I had accomplished, and then be able to take all that and start over with something fresh without all of the baggage of, you know, being tied to, you know, a long running series. So that that's what I did. I decided to end the Blackwell series with Epiphany. And, um, and also I, I was one, I, I was having trouble kind of um, keeping the, like their shtick fresh, their mm. whole, so there were very strict rules about how, you know, saving ghosts worked and, they, you know, find a ghost, learn about the ghost, save the ghost, and and that kind of feedback loop. There was there was only so many ways I could I could bend that and keep it fresh, and I kind of knew that. I knew that it would get stale eventually, and I kind of I, I it's obvious that like I, I, the story was going somewhere, and I could stretch it out as long as I wanted to. But why do that? Let's just go out on a high note, and so that's what I did with Epiphany. I kind of put everything into it, and uh, it was kind of traumatic actually because <laughs> yeah. like i i loved these characters and i they had been part of me for so long so i remember writing the the final scene of the game and kind of tearing up i was like in a cafe in my neighborhood writing this thing and i'm like jesus christ and i, I even went onto twitter and i'm like oh my god i'm writing the last scene and like, i can barely see straight i'm like tearing up and stuff like that and uh, especially like working with um abe goldfarb and rebecca whitaker when the voice acting you know i i always had their voices in my head and i, I miss that i miss working with rebecca especially because she doesn't she was great as rosa but doesn't do a lot of voice acting so i, I miss her as rosa so much abe I, I work with a lot but abe as joey was just something special um like watching him grow into that role and kind of like being very you know if you listen to the bloopers he's like very jokey and loose at the, at the start and by the end he's taking it deadly seriously like watching that change and grow was just amazing uh, again i'm going on a tangent but basically I, I saying goodbye to it was really hard and um but i it was nice to be able to take all of that and put it into unavowed um and being able to create something from from scratch that didn't that wasn't hobbled to something else i mean it takes place in the same universe as blackwell so there there are references and things for the hardcore fans um you might have noticed some um but um it, it, but you didn't have to have played blackwell to to get it and so any like a, a complete newbie could play unavowed and and have a great time without thinking, oh, maybe I need to play these other games first. They don't have to do that. And so like being able to start completely fresh was extremely liberating. Um, but at the same time, I still missed Rosa and Joey. There's this, this is silly story um, uh, that I tell that makes me just sound like a sentimental idiot. But I was sitting in this cafe once um, and it was winter. This was like a couple of years, this was about a couple of years after Blackwell ended. Uh, I was sitting in this cafe and they had this this wall length window facing the street. And I was listening to like this jazz music, which was kind of Blackwellish. And it was snowing, kind of like it did in Blackwell Epiphany. And I looked out the window and a woman walked by 
Red hair, black overcoat, earmuffs, looking almost exactly the way Rosa Blackwell did in the game. And my mouth gaped open and it was like I, you know, saw a ghost. It was the weirdest thing. And like I almost like completely melted like in in the cafe because I was suddenly so incredibly sad. Uh, it was like I was like in mourning for these characters because I, I loved them so much. Um so yeah, it, it was very hard to say goodbye, but it was also, I think, necessary. Hmm. That I mean, that would be very thematically in line if it had been a ghost. I know, right? It would have been the perfect, perfect <laughs> capstone. You've, you've closed off these characters, and now they're haunting you. Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, no, that's that's so interesting. The the notion that kind of whatever whatever you would do with the series it would always be beholden to the first games just because of how they were kind of like chronologically set yeah. and and it was my first game i still i'm hard on blackwell legacy but i still think it was the best i could have done with the the experience and the resources and the time i had at, uh, back then because i had very little time to make a game very little money to work with and i hadn't made a commercial game before and with all that in mind, I think I did. A, I, I still stand by it, knowing that I would do it completely differently now. But I, I stand by that because it was what I was capable of doing back then. So I, I think I'm a little hard on it, but um, I stand by it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely wouldn't say it's like a, a horrific game by any stretch. If people are listening to this and haven't played it, I would, I would say it's it's still pretty easy to go back to um though I, I would also agree that it's it's very one of the things that's really fun about the black hole games is is because they stretch over such a period of time you can really see that gross kind of as a storyteller and as a game designer like i playing yeah. playing epiphany now it is like it's extremely impressive to me just like looking around it and and thinking back to the first games and seeing just how much broader in scope it is, how much a lot of the kind of frustrations that would exist in the first games um, have been kind of sanded away. Uh, and also, yeah, like the voice acting is, is, is tremendous and, and definitely one of the, the highlights I think of, of all the Wadjet Eye games, because not, not a lot of indie games can't really do voice acting just because of resources or whatnot. So, it's always a joy when that uh, actually works out well. It's my favorite thing to do. I love work. I could talk about voice acting for like another hour. I, it's my favorite part of the process. Getting to like work with the voice actors is almost my reward for getting the game that far. <laughs> um, I, I just I love the process of voice actors. I find like the just everything about it just fascinating. Um, I just, I love it. Uh, this is why I also kind of, I also sometimes work with other developers. I'm not even publishing them, um, but I offer like, you know, they sometimes hire me to help them with the voice acting because I love doing it. I'm pretty good at it at this point. Uh, and, I, and I know a lot of voice actors. So it's like, I, I can, I know how to work with them and get good performances out of them because I've worked with them. Um, I, I love it. I love it. And so it's something I'm, I was happy to, um, do when I first started is uh, I was lucky that I was working I, I was in an improv group and I kind of pulled from that at the beginning and just from there I kind of 
I just, I don't know. It's hard to explain, but I, I just love it. I'm, and I'm glad you like it too. I'm glad people are receptive to the voice acting. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely a treat. And I think with how story heavy these games are, it makes a huge difference having having that level of, of characterization. I think so um, too. And I, yeah, I would go off on a tangent on that, but to, to kind, of, like, kind of keep these... Uh, turn into a voice acting podcast if we let it. Like I can talk about the like the the nitty gritty of like voice acting forever. So yeah. <laughs> if you want to turn into that, you better ask me something else. Yeah. Well, I, I'll probably start to wrap things up here just to try and keep these a little concise. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe in the future we'll, we'll, we'll meet up again and, and just dive into voice acting. Um, but uh, until then, uh, where can, where can people find you and, and your work online if they want to, want to see you out i am wadget i games on twitter and that's wadget with a j not a g and holy crap i'm kind of losing my voice here sorry about that um i'm on facebook uh i'm on i have a discord channel um and yeah you could if you want to find me you can find me i'm not hard to find (laughs) (laughs) i'm really not (laughs) for sure um yeah and all your all your games are on on steam at this point um yeah i i I play them on on pc are there are there mac versions i i haven't checked some are um apple has this horrible way of updating their os Mm -hmm. and then breaking our games which we then have to find the time to fix and so not all of them are available on mac or maybe not all the mac ports work (laughs) um that's mostly my wife's uh uh, area um but uh yeah she's kind of swamped with you know um we're, we're porting unavowed to the switch at the moment so that's taking priority but yeah most of our games are on mac not all of them though cool well people can mm-hmm. check those out or or keep an eye on the unavowed for switch i didn't i wasn't i didn't know about that one so that's exciting to to, yeah. to see that on a, on a new platform is this your your first uh console game have any of the others been on platforms yeah, no, none the, well we've had i um games on ios um mm-hmm. on ipad my phone um, but we've never had a game on a console before so that's exciting cool well, i'm looking forward to that um so closing these out i've been asking kind of each guest to just kind of share something that they find either inspiring or hopeful or just something they've really enjoyed recently just kind of closing things out seeing what other people are looking to as we tumble through this this very strange year um so if you have something you would like to share uh, <laughs> the last election is kind of the first thing i can think of is the first time i felt genuinely happy since the pandemic started um gosh. the world we were out on the street and the and the whole city just seemed to erupt into joy around us it was kind of incredible um so you, that 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 fills me with a bit of hope there well yeah absolutely seen i i, I live in a in a very red state so there was not a whole lot of in the street celebrating here but in in my own like little twitter twitter bubble that i exist in it was it was nice to see some actual like enthusiasm and joy from people and just a lot of relief especially i should make assumptions uh so like you could have yeah that could have led to a very awkward conversation sorry about that oh no for sure this this is a yeah no no uh no republicans on this podcast as, as far as i can tell i i'm yeah I, I 
find me on on Twitter yelling about about yeah. something that's happening in in a uh, in Tennessee right now. But the writer type living in Brooklyn who works in cafes most of the time. I mean, I I wear my alliances on my sleeve pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, very very much similar company, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, glad glad that that. Where are you based, by the way? Oh, I'm in, I'm in Tennessee, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. you know, typical typical Southern beliefs, but there are some there there are more there are more progressive I'm and people. So I know all about that. Yeah, but it's it has been encouraging uh, this year, especially meeting a lot more uh, kind of progressive leftist people out here that I wouldn't have typically expected um in a in a kind of notoriously red state. So oh, technology that's just can make the world uh very small. Um you mm-hmm. can reach out to people that you never would encounter and I find that quite wonderful. That's a better message of hope. There we go. Let's go yeah. with that one. Yeah, it's it's all it's all very encouraging. And yeah, on on that note, uh thank you for, for coming on and, and having a talk. It has been very enlightening and, and interesting and oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. yeah and I'm, and I'm very excited to see what there. <laughs> it could oh. make sense of the babble that I, I i yammer on about oh for sure no it's it's far more coherent than usually a lot of a lot hey. of the ways i try and and tumble through these shows it's been a work in progress but it's been we a fun are. time so yeah thanks so much for coming on i look forward to your future projects uh, oh, there's a lot of them i've i've seen and they all look very exciting. So, yeah, I will. I will let you get back to to all of that. Um, yeah, I hope you have a a good holiday and and rest of a day. My my nieces are screaming at the door. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear that. Uh, yeah, my my daughter is uh, is also kind of being a nuisance out there. I should probably go uh, leave. <laughs> For sure. Alrighty. <laughs> Take care. Thanks so much. Critical Care is produced by me, Nate Kiernan, with music by Desired. You can find Desired on Bandcamp at desired.bandcamp.com. I'm on Twitter at Nate Kiernan, and you can keep up with everything critical-related at critical.com. If you like the show, maybe share it with a loved one, and if you're able, consider supporting the work of my wonderful guests. Until next time, stay safe, stay home, and remember, this is not game over. We're still fighting and we're going to get through this. 